It's the Pizza Party Podcast. I'm Pan Pizza. Who are you people? I'm doing homework. I'm working on your mama. And we have a special guest today. Who is this person? Oh, it's Mike Mozart, the toy reviewer and best crazy artist over the past three decades. Probably mostly known for my YouTube channels, Jeepers Media and the Toy Channel. And I'm um, actually quite well known now on Instagram as Mike Mozart doing big wall art, mostly of Uncle Scrooge mm -hmm. McDuck from DuckTales and... Um, Mr. Monopoly and Richie Rich, and I'm sort of going back to what I was doing 35 years ago. I was one of the, the biggest commercial artists at that time period of character art. So real quick, I, I'm sorry, he mentioned Scrooge McDuck, so I really want to ask, are you excited about the reboot for the DuckTales cartoon? Yes, and I've mentioned it many times on my social media, and people are saying, oh, they're going to ruin it, oh, they're changing it, oh, they're modernizing it, and it's not as good. I think that it's clever. I think it's it's a great show and it's very interesting. You know, you have to refreshen things. You know what? They just don't look good. I mean, you can you can fill a garden full of flowers. You keep watering it and tending it. But, you know, over time, it just doesn't look as beautiful as it once did. It's good to pull everything out and start all over again. And that's what Disney did. I kind of yeah. like what they so did. You, you just got to start over and start fresh and for a new generation. But something an older audience can still enjoy. Yeah. And people say, oh, they're going to homogenize it. They're going to make it too too politically correct now. Well, I don't know. I, I think what they're doing right now is very clever, and they're actually going. They're really pushing the limits in some of the jokes that I've seen published already. I think it's pretty nice. Yeah. But for um, anyone who hasn't seen your videos or your art, uh, who were you for the as the average YouTuber? Because like, this is how a lot of us knew you first. Like, How were you on YouTube in like 2007 or eight? What did you do? Well, I actually started on YouTube in 2005 when it was in their beta test system. Oh. And when I first signed in, I started making reviews on – not really – actually, at the point – at that point, I hadn't made any reviews yet. Um, I was doing videos on how to design and create toys because at the time I was a very popular toy designer and also how to do artwork. Now, most of those original videos I first put up, I made private. Because I discovered that people liked my toy reviews much better than my how to draw videos and how to create toy videos. So I, I took down everything that didn't fit the exact theme that everyone seemed to love, which was toy reviews. And my most famous toy reviews early on were called Fail Toys on a channel called Jeepers Media. They're still there. There's about 700 of them. And I was reviewing the worst toys in history, and that became my shtick. That became my claim to fame on YouTube in 2007, 2008, yeah, 2009. I think uh, one of the first ones I saw was, uh, I think it was called Rip Roaring Tarzan, and it was just this inappropriate Tarzan toy. Yes. I love that well, video so much. Yeah, well, that that toy, it's called Rad Repeating Tarzan. Ah, uh, yes. And um, it, it, was a clever, it was a clever toy. You push a button in the middle of his back, and it's arm would go up and down in a karate chop action <laughs> and um it was intended that he holds a knife in his hand when you're doing the action when he's in the try me package he has no knife so when you <laughs> when you hit that button on his back his hand his hand is has two possible positions one it makes it look like he's um entertaining himself <laughs> in a way yeah. and and the other way looks like he's giving a nazi salute oh god um I never mentioned that in the video. In the toy review video, I never mentioned that. That's what got it pulled off the shelves was that aspect of the 
toy. Yeah. That was the controversy. Mm-hmm. But the other part of it was kind of funny, too. Yeah. And then when he's doing the action where if you just twist his hand so it looks like it's at his crotch, when you push the button on his back, he goes, ah, 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 <laughs> like that. Yeah, I get like that sometimes. But also you can swear on this. So it's okay if you if you need him to swear. Oh, yeah. You can say whatever you want on here. Okay. Well, I have to say that that Rad Repeat and Tarzan, um, another another very uh, unfortunate feature about that toy was it was it was rad repeating Tarzan. It was intended that kids could record whatever they wanted Tarzan to say. Oh my god! And it was a try me in the package in the store. So of course, you know, all the typical thirteen year old kids <laughs> with bad things on their minds, or people like me, <laughs> you'd go up to it and, re- and record. <laughs> Um, for you tonight when you fall asleep. <laughs> the kids would touch the button in the store and hear things like that and freak out. I'm, I'm sure that toy goes for a lot on eBay now, I believe. I don't know. I bet they're up to probably 90 or $150 a piece in that range. Dang. But they weren't expensive, you know, in 2008 when I probably did that video. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people discovered it first through your video since you were one of the first YouTubers. Like, there was hardly, there was not that much content on YouTube in, like, 2008. No. Not, not there was well, two, yeah. I'm sorry, but um, 2006, 2007 is the content free time on YouTube. Hmm, yeah. What happened is 2005 is when high speed internet first started coming into people's homes. Mm-hmm. Before that point, is everyone had dial up and it went beep, 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 beep. Remember that sign in? Oh noise? yeah, the AOL thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, what happened is after 2005 is when it really first started getting into people's homes. But most people didn't get high-speed internet until about 2008. So there's this, there's this magical time in 2005, 2006, and early 2007 when I was there on YouTube when it was, when it was just born. And there was barely any content. There were only about 20 people really putting up a lot of original content that amounted to anything, and I was one of them. Um, there were a lot of issues at the time that slowed people down is that if you didn't have quite a high-speed connection, it could take hours and hours to upload a two-minute video. Yeah. And people don't realize it. They don't, they don't see what I went through at the time because at the time I was actually creating television commercials. Mm-hmm. So I had professional editing equipment, and I had a higher-speed connection than most people would have had. But even if I edited a three-minute video at the time, it could take as long as four hours to render it oh to be God. suitable to upload. Mm-hmm. Um, now, people would say, well, I used to upload videos in, in three minutes. Then, Well, because they would do one take on, say, a small digital camera that was low resolution. Mm-hmm. And I, I edited everything at the time in 1080, even though YouTube couldn't take it. And I've been very tempted to re-upload a lot of those old videos. You should. Um, yeah, definitely. In 1080. I mean, I, uh, the, th- the way you know about how YouTube works now is like it's not based on clicks anymore. It's based on minutes watched. So I think you should just upload these videos in like one long marathon session. <laughs> well, it isn't even minutes watched. Now, I know a lot more about YouTube than a lot of people do. Hmm, yeah. I When Google Plus came out, remember that failed system, Google Plus? It was yep. supposed to be like the next Facebook, but became the next <laughs> MySpace. <sighs> I was very big on that system. I thought that could be something, and I really focused on it. Well, they had this thing in it called Google Plus Hangouts, where you could actually sit with like eight or ten people and talk to them all at once. Well, what happened with that is I followed everyone that worked at Google. So I would know when they went into a Hangout together, and I would jump in to listen to them talk about you know what they did. By being there and asking the right people the right questions, I found out that 
that not only is it minutes watched, the most important aspect of getting your YouTube videos watched is something called audience retention. It's, it's unfortunate a lot of my videos were copied. And what I mean mm -hmm. by copied is people would download my videos because most of my videos don't have content ID. Yeah. They would, up, they would upload it to a YouTube channel that's blind. That means just it's just there just temporarily and just long enough so they can see what the audience retention points are in my videos. They would refilm my videos with the same toys and say almost the exact same words and just choose the high audience retention points. I know this sounds very difficult to explain. Oh, I, I, get, I get what you're saying. That's, that's so no, I do too. Up. Yeah, that, that just, it's that happening just... a lot. It happened a lot. And I w there are a lot of toy reviewers now that are basically toy review factories on YouTube that are mm -hmm. turning out 40 or 50 toy reviews a day that are basically just spam. Yeah. Where they find what works as a high audience retention and then they refilm it with 12 different sets of hands with slightly different words and slightly different layouts. So if somebody's searching Minnie Mouse's new fun play kitchen, they're going to be the top 25 of 50 results. Mm -hmm. There's no way to avoid it. Because you just see like all those thumbnails with like bright neon colors and just says egg openings of something or blind bag openings. Yes. Yeah, and you'll see that if you look that there are probably 40 different YouTube channels that are doing kinder egg openings or yeah, blind bag openings, at least 40 different channels. Yeah. But if you look at the, the production quality, the backgrounds, the way the hands are laid out, the way the lighting is, it's obvious that all 40 channels are the same person. <laughs> okay. That, and so I, I always had the conspiracy theory, like all, all these weird finger channels and all these other channels are like the same person on separate channels. Pan, can you, Pan, if, after you say the conspiracy theory thing, can you edit in Mulder saying, Scully, you're not going to believe this? <laughs> it's like there's yeah. like a bunch of toy channels on YouTube and they're all run by the <laughs> same person. But it well, isn't, but, you know, if, if you really think about it, what they're trying to do is earn income. Yeah. And... I can't blame someone if they found a formula that works, they can make income from it. Of course, they're going to earn income with it. Yeah. And what it does is it's a drawback to original creators like myself that find it very difficult to be seen now. Now, I can be seen because I still have hundreds of thousands of followers. That's not a problem. Mm -hmm. But it's very difficult now for new kids that want to review toys to come in because there's just too much competition from these big factory type review channels, it's really difficult for yeah. new people to be seen, um, which, which it, it may be a good thing. It may, so kids don't waste a lot of time really trying to become the best toy reviewer on YouTube right now, which would be very difficult. They may become the best toy reviewer on daily motion, or they will go on a different platform right now and get seen there. You know, there are lots of new opportunities on the internet. I think that YouTube as a fresh, hot, new opportunity isn't what it was. Yeah. But, not. But there's a lot of opportunities on Instagram and on Twitch and on other platforms. A lot of them don't have um, uh, um, monetization so people can get income immediately from their original content. But if you're an artist doing paintings, Instagram is a great resource to be on right now. I mean a lot of people that collect art or are interested in buying art follow artists on Instagram. That's hmm. just the hot place to do it right now. Yes, I watched your um, live stream and you talked about like hashtagging is important on Instagram. Oh, absolutely. Um, that's something that people don't do enough of. I believe I said that in one of my live streams. Someone said, why do you put so many hashtags? Well, because you need to be seen. And if you say, now my artwork I do on Instagram is pop art, usually with Uncle Scrooge McDuck, say for example. 
mm-hmm. and I'll put hashtag Uncle Scrooge, hashtag Scrooge, hashtag Disney, hashtag pop art, hashtag modern art. You know, I would do a lot of hashtags because when you do a search on Instagram, it's by, I'm going to put in the search field, pop art, yeah. and it will bring up all of those things. Now, Instagram does not arrange, arrange the um, search result by the newest. They have a grid of 16 where they take the 16 most popular and put them at the top, and all the rest are in order that they were uploaded. Yeah. So, so you have a pretty good chance. You actually have a very good chance of being seen on Instagram, even if you're not one of the top people, because after you get past those top 16, which are separated at the top, all the rest, it's all an open field. Whoever uploaded that hashtag last will be number one in line. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of opportunity on Instagram to be seen, whereas on YouTube, it's almost impossible. If I started a new toy review channel with no followers, mm-hmm. I mean, I would that would never show up in search results. No. The only way you could only way you could show up is by most recent. But these factory channels doing toy reviews, I call them factory channels because of just sheer quantity of what they're pumping out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But let's say um, factory channels. Let's say they're uploading between the seven or eight different factory channels, maybe eighty toy reviews a day, maybe more than that, maybe one hundred and twenty a day, and you're going to get drowned out by them. They're experts at using hashtagging. You know, they they know how to, you know, really get their work seen as number one. Doesn't mean it's the best, but they're working YouTube system to be to have YouTube believe they're number one. Yeah. Um, so I would say one of the the really good channels that's left, and he's a really great guy, is Lucky Penny Shop. Mm-hmm. He was doing work probably about five or six years ago, seven years ago, right about the time I was sort of drifting away from YouTube. And he gives these long folksy reviews that are very pleasant to listen to and the kids like it. It's nice. It's not a factory production. It's a really nice, it's a really nice way to review products. Oh yeah. Cause I, I stumbled on his videos recently, a couple of days ago. Like I was looking up, uh, I was researching for some reason uh, silly bands, and I eventually found his videos. Now they're pretty nice. I really like what he's done. Yeah. He's just a, a, he's not a professional video maker. He's just a really good, nice person. He's good natured. Kids like him. Parents like him. He doesn't swear in his videos. It's all very even paced. Mm-hmm. That really works in today's society in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. I think people got very sick of YouTube the way it was about five years ago or eight years ago when. When everything was smash bang in your face, hey my God, go look at this! Look at this yeah. prick over here! Oh my God! I'm sorry, I pulled the phone don't away. Don't forget from to my like face, and subscribe. So yeah, yeah, don't forget. I used to do that at the end of all my videos too. That does work, by the way. Oh, <laughs> it does work tremendously. I've tested both manners of hmm. doing that, but by having all those ancient videos that have the last 15 or 20 seconds say that is actually a big detriment now because it lowers audience retention. Yeah. When people hit the point where I say that, they leave now. Because most of the people that are watching my videos already subscribed, for one. Yeah. And the other thing is that they've changed their rating systems about 15 times, where it was different star systems that they had when they first started, different thumbs up and down systems that they've had. So I'll say, don't forget to, don't give me, give me five stars. They're right there, and I'll point in the in the screen. But yeah. there's no stars there anymore. Nope. People are like, what the, what's, what's he talking about stars? Stars? What is this? To be fair, no one, did anyone ever, like, Give like a four star or a two star rating. Like it was always either five or one. I would say that because when you're a YouTube partner, you could see exactly how many stars there were yeah. at the time. And there was there was a, a distribution of stars. Mm-hmm. There there were I would say I got very few one star ratings. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say, of course, mostly five stars because I actually ask, please give me five stars. People are very nice. People want to be nice. Mm-hmm. People want to be helpful. People want to be kind. And if you ask them to do something for you, they'll do it. Um, and, and of course, you have to do it if you feel you appreciate, if you appreciate the people doing it, which I always did. And if you felt you deserved it, which I always did, because I put a lot of extra time into my videos, a lot of people didn't. But I would say I, I still got a lot of three stars and four star ratings. It happened quite a lot. Yeah. Um, I miss the old system. The old system, I think, worked better than uh, just plain thumbs up, thumbs down system. But um, I don't even know if they still have that system anymore. Do no. they still have thumbs up and thumbs <laughs> thumbs down? up and thumbs down? That's all we get. Okay. But um, for YouTube, do you have any plans for your YouTube? Because you've been gone for such a long time. Yeah, I I really stopped posting a lot about two years ago. Mm-hmm. About, about between three and two years ago, it's when I started drifting into wanting to return to wall art. Yeah. When I was uh, when I was a child, you know, way back in those misty years of sixteen, seventeen, eighteen years old. Mm-hmm. Um, I that's at a time when I'd always been an artist. Always knew I wanted to be an artist. And that's when I was going to New York City, getting my first artwork jobs, mostly doing Disney books. I was fortunate when I was young because I grew this huge, bushy beard. There's not many kids at 15 that have a huge, bushy beard. And so I'd go into New York City when I first got my learner's permit at 15. In Connecticut, you could drive when you were 15 if you had a learner's permit. Mm -hmm. You didn't even have to have anyone in your car. You just had to have the permit. So as soon as I turned 15, I got my permit. And whatever year that was, 78 or 79. And I was driving to the train station and going into New York City and actually getting children's book jobs at that age. Hmm. And nobody knew I was 15. They thought I was like 24, 25 because of the way I looked. And um, at the time, I really wanted to do wall art. And I was pitching it to galleries where I wanted to do street art, like graffiti art, street art. And I was bringing the, my samples, and then they thought, no one's going to buy this. This is, And you're a commercial artist. That ruins it. You can't do serious art. You can't do fine art. You're, you're, you do Disney art. Mm-hmm. And the galleries all rejected me at the time, but I really wanted to do it. So for the next decade, actually next two decades until the late 1990s, I was, I was painting and drawing mostly children's books, toy product packaging design. Uh, mostly Disney products because Disney products were very popular at the time. Disney was going through a real renaissance at that time yeah. period. And um, things were going great until until Toy Story got released in theaters. And and I was I became instantly like Sheriff Woody. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as Sputnik went up, nobody wanted cowboy toys. They all wanted space toys. Mm-hmm. As soon as Toy Story launched in theaters, nobody wanted hand-drawn, old-timey-looking art. They wanted fresh new computer artwork. Mm-hmm. You know, so I got shelved in that type of a career, and it was just fortunate that I could transition at the time into doing a lot of toy products and games and other products that required um, more sculptural, more conceptual type um, ideas rather than just taking paint and putting on a piece of paper and it's Mickey Mouse holding a flower for an Easter product. And I okay, did a lot so- of that type of work. This is completely unrelated, but you said Woody, and you know you do. I, I know you so much for your toy reviews, so I immediately thought, "What's your thoughts on Creepy Woody? Have you seen those pictures where like they have that Japanese toy where it comes with two oh faces?" Oh my god! Oh yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, 
I, I hate to even add this part in. Um, yes, that is the Revolve Tech Woody. It's part of their line. It was never intended to be creepy like it was. <laughs> I, was an, I was an early adopter of that toy and an unfortunate early photographer of such things. I hate to admit it, somewhere on my Flickr, uh, actually credited to me. But I've probably taken about 400 of them that I just posted and didn't get credit for, which I probably sh- I, I probably don't want credit for them now, so I won't point out the specific ones. <laughs> but let's just say everyone at my office here had a grand time with that toy. Oh. <laughs> and my co- my collection of other anime toys at the time period. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I had a lot of interns here when I was doing the, the video production. And I did continue my video production you know, pretty much up until 2014 or so. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, there's, there's quite a lot of – I'm walking around, by the way, as I'm talking to you. Oh, yeah. If you want to see some of my pictures of my Revoltec Woody, they are, are on Flickr.com slash Jeepers Media. Mm-hmm. And there's no E in the word Flickr. It's the old Yahoo photo sharing site. Yes, yeah. it still exists. And I have 70,000 Creative Commons pictures there. Actually, I actually have a quarter of a million. I just haven't had time to make them public and write out what the descriptions are. <laughs> But all of my pictures I've ever taken of Woody from that set are all Creative Commons. So that's why they've been shared so much. Yeah. We'll include all your social media links in the description and uh, the the comments. I don't know how far you want to keep going with that. (laughs) Let's say – let's just say – I introduced I introduced Sheriff Woody to my Sailor Moon collection. Uh-oh. The internet has never been the same since. God damn. <laughs> yes. That's why there's so many of those pictures. Yeah. And it wasn't me. I swear most of those were not taken by me. They were taken by my interns. <laughs> How could you resist if you have all those toys there with Sheriff Woody? You know? This creepy Woody doll. Like, you <laughs> wouldn't want to do this. But um, do you plan on returning to YouTube now? Yes, yes. I'm coming back to YouTube because I believe I have something new to offer. I've been going through all my old files, and I have literally hundreds and hundreds of boxes of artwork from all the products and the games and the books I did over the years. And I think I can make my toy reviews a little more interesting by doing drawings or paintings that I show during the course of the videos. So if I'm reviewing a Barbie toy, well, look here, I just drew a little Barbie painting. Isn't this funny? And I'll try to do something that really matches the story, matches the review. Because most of the toy reviewers that are doing toy reviews now just show their hands and talk about the toy. I can show something very creative and different in my toy reviews that no one else can do. Now, it's very clear if you look at my toy review for Play-Doh sets, particularly the Monsters, Inc. Play-Doh set. Because I was a professional sculptor of toy figures. I did action figures when they were actually hand sculpted by real people. (laughs) Yeah, And um, so my Play-Doh reviews show my sculptures as professional sculptor material quality. It's funny to see them. There's no kids that are going to come up with sculptures like I did with these Play-Doh sets. But um, I think that by doing that, it will add something new and interesting. I mean, my reviews were good anyway. The part that a lot of these factory reviewers are missing is that my reviews were entertaining. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, it's it's that if you turn on a YouTube channel or if you you go on the Internet, if you watch anything with video, you really you really at heart want to be entertained. You want to laugh. You want to see something that's fun or see something that's challenging or something that's that's provocative or something. And if you just open up here, here's an unboxing video of this toy, like a lot of these factory people do. It's so boring. 
here we've opened the toy. This is what the toy does. Look, the toy talks. This is how it walks. This is where you put the batteries. That's boring. Really, it's not entertaining. My, my reviews, which a couple of those factory people tried to do, is I, I made voices. I actually did cartoon character voices to match the toys. And wow, there's, a, there's something funny about that too, which is a whole topic of another show. And I don't know how far I can go with this. But I used to do a lot of cartoon character voices for early imported Japanese TV shows. What, you did? <laughs> I did. I absolutely did. You were a voice and actor? I was a voice actor back in the late 70s and about mm-hmm. until 1987, 88. Mm-hmm. And I have copies of my contracts to prove I did the voices. <laughs> now, one of the problems at the time is that I wasn't part of any unions. Yeah. That was a big problem. So I couldn't be credited on screen. But I have all my original scripts. For, for at least 25 different TV shows and the voices I did, plus the original contract showing I did those voices. But at the time, if you weren't a union person, you weren't allowed to get credit. And I did try to get into the union at the time, but I never, I never bothered because I was doing the voices for fun. I wasn't doing it for uh, money. I wasn't doing it to make that my career. And I did those for quite a while, and it was a blast. That's how I got into WTXX mm-hmm. in, in um, Waterbury, Connecticut, when I was doing that TV show with TX Critter, who later became Alf. Yes, yeah, so you oh yeah, that, you were telling us this before the, you, we recorded the podcast, but uh, you actually were a part of Alf before Alf became a thing. But look, I got some cool pugs. Alf pugs. Remember Alf? He's back in pod form. Yes, and you can look it up online, and I've really got to correct some of the online references about this, is that in the later 80s, middle to later 80s, there was a TV show called um, Funtime Express. Well, it's called Funtime and Funtime Express, and I think the last iteration of the show was JJ and Funtime Express. Mm-hmm. That JJ is the host that followed me, and I hosted a kid's TV show on in Connecticut on Waterbury Connecticut's channel 20 WTXX and I was the co-host with a puppet the puppet was called TX Critter who was the uh, puppeteer was Paul Fusco and um, there was another guy involved at the time too and I'd like to find out what happened to him because he doesn't seem to be mentioned online with Alf was Tony Basilicato because he was there too but um it was Alf. That puppet was Alf. Mm-hmm. It was the same puppeteer, and it was the same basic puppet frame as Alf, which became Alien Life Form on the successful television program. Yeah. But I appeared with that guy doing the kids' afternoon um, cartoon block, and I was the host, and I would draw pictures of different cartoon characters between the cartoon shows. Mm-hmm. And people thought it was all done live, and it wasn't. We used to film them all Friday afternoons from about noon to five or noon to six and i had a script of every cartoon that was going to be shown and what happened so what would happen is the cartoon was going to to end say we had to cut to a commercial break and bugs bunny just fell off a building and hit the sidewalk (laughs) and they would cut back to me and go wow bugs bunny oh will he make it he's going to be okay tune in just just come right back after these messages and see what happened to bugs Mm -hmm. and then when they'd come back i'd often have a drawing partially made i made during that that break allegedly which it wasn't i drew them all in advance 
And I said, look, I sketched this up. This is what's going to happen with bugs. Watch what happens. And um, we used to film those like that. I never even saw most of the cartoons that they were using at the time. You know, it's like they told, this is the list of the cartoons. This is what happens the moment that it breaks to a commercial. Work with it. And um, TX Critter and I worked with it for about six months over one summer. It was, it was quite a lot of fun until I got real busy with college and couldn't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And I used to be known as Mr. Mike. I was Mr. Mike on the show. <laughs> so it was Mr. Mike and TX Critter on WTXX. <laughs> sort of a crazy thing to think about now. But at the time, I only have a few pictures of myself on the show, maybe a couple of videos. I'm, I'm hoping Channel 20 and Waterbury has more videos. But oddly enough, it was that TV show that led me to do uh, a, a computer-generated TV commercial, one of the very first ever homemade like computer-generated TV commercials for Crestwood Ford in Waterbury, Connecticut. And that's why I, I became interested in Pixar was because I was offered to, to animate this um, TV commercial where I took this bear called Cresty for Crestwood Ford. And I animated this little bear walking around in a showroom with real people like Mary Poppins where the, the character's animated and he's overlaid onto real life video. And I did the commercial and I had it as a sample. And um, while I was working on it, I used a machine there called a SciTech machine, which I'm sure hasn't existed in 30 years. And... Um, they had samples of work that was being done by this little, little, little tiny startup company called Pixar. And there was one that just captured my imagination called Knickknack, which was a little snowman in a snow dome. Yeah, I remember. It was, it was on one of the bonus features for one of the DVDs of Pixar's movies. Well, that is one of the earliest, earliest shorts, and I saw it on a tape, and it was a sample that got gotten at a trade show, and it said, must be destroyed by a certain date. <laughs> like, this video must be destroyed by, like, like January 1989 or something. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was funny. Wow. So if you had it, you had to promise that if you had it, you were going to destroy it. <laughs> <laughs> so we would kn- that could have been lost media, just knick-knack be destroyed? Yeah, well, if it could have been. I don't think everyone would have destroyed them, mm-hmm. but I think that... You know, Pixar in its early, early days was was in very fragile ground. Mm-hmm. And even when I went out there, the people at Pixar, I don't feel that they were confident that it was going to keep going. And, um, and when, of course, Pixar, when they started, I actually went to Pixar quite a few times in the early days. And when I first went out there, it was before Joe Ramph was there. Mm-hmm. And um, it was they were trying to pitch computers. They were trying to sell the computers to use to create animation rather than animation themselves. Mm-hmm. And they had all these Pixar computers everywhere they were trying to pitch. And uh, it wasn't a very big company. This was a very small company, maybe 20 people the first time I went out. Mm-hmm. And the, the first time I went out, um, who I, the person I really wanted to meet was John Lasseter, and he wasn't there when I, when I went there the first time, which was sort of a disappointment. He was the creator of Knickknack. Yeah. But, but um, yeah, he wasn't there. I did, I did see him sleeping on a subsequent time. <laughs> it's the only time I've ever met him. He was asleep, so he doesn't recall our meeting. Oh, <laughs> was he just on the sofa, just like when you show up? Well, what happened is I went out to Pixar quite a few times. I thought they'd be a great place to work. I'd moved my family. I was married and had two little boys that were, you know, like one and two years old. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, I want to work at Pixar. This is great. You know, at the time, the first, the first couple times I went out there, 
um, after the after the first time when I just mostly saw computers, when I actually saw them working on video productions, they were doing mostly TV commercials, mm-hmm. and they were doing commercials for Listerine, like animated commercials for Listerine. Um, yeah. They did gummy bears. They did Lifesavers gummies that were animated, like the little guy from Flubber. Mm-hmm. Um, they were doing work like that, and they were doing this other this other production for California Lottery that had a woman at a piano, and they had animated the piano keys like a flyby. It was really dramatic. Mm-hmm. And all I thought, wow, the woman's hair looks so bad. It looks like a big glob of hair gel on her head. It was the 80s. I guess then they weren't rendering hair very well at that point, I'll oh. tell you. But I know that was for California Lottery. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so when I went out, uh, I really wanted to work at Pixar. And there was a gentleman I'd become friends with there named Joe Ramp. And I went out one of the times and, you know, he said, you know, you could probably get in here. We've had a lot of problems. You know, this is the early days of Pixar. This is before any of their feature films came out. Mm-hmm. This is when they were struggling to get by earning some money with these commercials. They were they had become part of Apple at that point, the Apple um, computer company. Yeah. They were like uh, an incubator thing for them. And um, I said, wow, this will be great. And he says, so Joe Ram said, well, you have to think of your family and your children. You have this huge extended family in Connecticut. You're going to move to California. No grandpa, no grandma, no relatives. And you're going to be working so many hours. You're not going to spend the time you really need with them, especially at the ages they are. And he said, see that guy laying on that sofa over there? That's John Lasseter. That's what (laughs) you're going to be like if you start working here. And this guy was sound asleep on the sofa because he'd worked so many hours and was waiting for something to render at the time because rendering took a long time. That was my sole time I ever met John Lasseter. He was asleep (laughs) on the sofa. And it was because of that recommendation I actually did decide, you know, I'll stay in Connecticut. He said, said, you know, when children are like 10, 12, 14 years old, as they get older, you know, as they've grown up with their families and, you know, and they've had this, you know, this – this great living environment. If you still want to work, I'm sure there'll be a place out here, you know, in California. If it's not Pixar, this will be the coming thing, you know, computer animation, you'll be fine. And as it turned out, I did take his advice. And um, of course, I think everyone knows what happened to Pixar after that point. Yep. But uh, that was, that was quite an interesting point in my life too, Mm -hmm. when I was going out there and, um, uh, Joe Ramp, the gentleman that I had uh, friended at the company, unfortunately passed away mm. um, tragically. Mm-hmm. And I always feel sort of bad about it because it was somebody I liked. I mean, we weren't dear friends. We, were, we weren't even that close, but we talked. You know, he would have a question, especially about toys, and he wouldn't hesitate to call me or, or send me a message if he just needed some information. And, and it was sort of a nice relationship. And um, he collected magic trick things. He loved magic trick things. Um, mm-hmm. Joe Ramp, for anyone that's listening that doesn't know who he is, he was the one of the lead writers of most of the early um, Disney features. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe he was the re- lead writer on Monsters, Inc., or one of the lead writers. And he he is one of the writers of Disney Pixar's Cars, the first Cars movie. Yeah. And he actually appears as characters in some of them, mm-hmm. you know, with a voice talent in some of those movies. Slow down, you flowers! Joe Ramp is the most brilliant story man ever to work in animation. He's also very funny. Yoo-hoo, Mr. Early Bird! How about the nice, tasty worm on a shtick? Well, he started doing the voice of Heimlich as this, like, Bavarian German mama's boy. 
Mmm, boysenberry. And all of a sudden, Joe's scratch track for Heimlich becomes one of the most endearing, and I think probably one of the most enduring characters from the movie. Wasn't he also the Yeti in Monsters, Inc.? No, wait, I remember... I remember... Never mind. No, he's not the Yeti. That was the... No, that was... That's the... The, the truck. Oh. I'm, I'm forgetting things. I haven't seen those movies in years, but I remember something was, specific. I forget what the guy's name is, but he's the guy that was in Cheers. And oh, then at the end yeah, is yeah. one of the extra credits when uh, in Cars. The Cars extra at the end when they're watching the credits go yeah. by. Uh, um, Mack Truck and Lightning McQueen go to the theater and they're watching a car toy story. <laughs> no, a Monsters, Inc. with cars, I think it is. Oh, uh, Monster Trucks, Inc., I think. <laughs> yeah, Monsters, Trucks, Inc., and it says the Abominable Snowplow. And it says, hey, they just keep using the same voices over and over again. What kind of cut-rate production is this? <laughs> I remember, yeah, now I remember that scene. Yeah. I think he was, I think that in Cars, wow, just funny now to think about. It. I think in Cars, he might have been the voice of the Peterbilt guy. Either the Peterbilt guy or the... RV that was on the field. I'm not sure. Wheezy, you're fixed. Oh, yeah. Mr. Shark looked in the toy box and found me an extra squeaker. And how do you feel? Oh, I feel swell. In fact, I think I feel a song coming on. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. You just remember what your old pal said, baby, you got a friend in me. Because, again, at the time, when these things are happening at the time, you don't think anything of them. Yeah. It's just someone you kind of know, and you know a lot of people. So you don't think that mm. that, that relationship was any different than any other. Mm -hmm. But now, in hindsight, looking back, wow, what, what a person to have known at that time period. What mm -hmm. a person to have interacted with and heard their stories and did talk to them. And think that that you might have had some influence on some of these early productions. And you've met someone that really had a lot of influence on early productions. But at the time, it, it, looking back, it didn't – at the time, it just didn't seem like a big deal. It was yeah. like, what a nice guy, you know? Mm -hmm. My whole life has been full of people like that. My life is still full of people like that. Mm -hmm. And like which, which one of these relationships is going to turn out to be the one, wow, I wish I recorded this better. Wow, I wish I – I wish I spent more time with that person, mm -hmm. just not knowing. Mm -hmm. um, when I was when I was um, starting out, when I was doing my children's book illustration, I used to do a lot of work with the comic strip artists, the guys that actually were doing um, Blondie and High and Lois. And uh, um, I'm just thinking of all the strips that the people worked on. A lot of them you don't know anymore because the strips have sort of gone by the wayside. Mm -hmm. But um, like who knows the comic strip flip anymore? But it, it was a big comic strip 30 years ago, and I used to have lunch with all these people at a pizza place in Danbury, Connecticut, where they all used to meet. Yeah. You know, you'd meet great cartoonists there. They would all gather. Here's the artist. Here's Leonard Starr here. You know, at the time, the time Leonard Starr was doing The Heart of Juliet Jones, but he was doing Blondie at the time because he had taken over for um, – wow. Funny. I didn't think I'd be talking about, about this part of it, mm -hmm. but the original artist had – had gotten too old or something, and he'd taken over the comic strip for him for a while. And um, Gil Thorpe was a comic strip, and the artist was there for that. Um, and I used to sit and eat lunch with all these guys. 
And at the time, I didn't think it was anything that big. But now I wish I had taken video, which would have been impossible. There were no video cameras back there in 77, 78 that people had. But what a magical moment in time where all these artists used to gather once a week for years and years and years. At, I think it was called John's Pizza in Danbury, Connecticut. Are you thankful that now we have social media to catalog these sort of things and just these experiences? Yeah, back then. Yeah, back then, everything was expensive. I've had so many people ask me, why didn't you catalog this better? <laughs> Well, back then I was poor. I grew up impoverished. Mm. You know, my father was a janitor at a YMCA. Think how much money we had growing up. Mm-hmm. We had nothing. And um, back then, photography was expensive. If you bought a roll of 12 Coda color pictures as negatives and put them in a camera, the film itself at the time was probably 3 or $4, which was a lot in 1978. That was a lot of money. It was like 14 bucks now, maybe. Hey, little buddy, want a ride? Yeah, whatever. I'll be right back. Where can you catch all 150 Pokemon? Yeah. On your Game Boy, that's where. Pokemon for Game Boy is here. With both packs, you can catch them all. I still play Pokemon Go. Hate to admit it. <laughs> okay, stop laughing, everybody. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but one of the reasons that I've studied Pokemon Go is that I knew that it would become a platform or that that exact type of gaming would become the ultimate way for people to virtually shop in stores. Mm-hmm. You could actually go to a store virtually and go into the store and walk into the store virtually. And it could actually point out sales as you're virtually walking down an aisle. Yeah, what was it called? And, um, uh, augmented reality? I yeah, think. augmented reality, but not really. Augmented reality would mean you'd have glasses on walking through the store, and mm. little little um, videos might come up in the glasses pointing. I think that a lot of people are going to be shopping from their homes. Because like, I feel like people are going to be uh, – Online stores are going to be a bigger thing since, like, people don't, don't want to deal with going out to these places and being asked, like, hey, do you want to sign up for this membership? Do you want to sign up for this and all these other things? Speaking of augmented reality, um, the Nintendo Switch and its, like, uh, patents and such, it clearly has capability and most likely will be going towards augmented reality in the future. Yes. Um, and so with it being the screen and such, being able to interact with things, I think it's going to be really big. So I think Nintendo is already kind of like jumping on, which ironically, I guess Nintendo didn't really have anything to do with Pokemon Go. But, you know, it's kind of the same thing. Like they're they're going through and I I honestly believe augmented reality is going to be a thing. Mm -hmm. I don't think the augmented reality is going to be the thing as virtual reality where someone could be in their own home. And they're, say they have a joystick on their phone, and they're actually walking around in stores choosing the groceries they want virtually. Yeah. Having a virtual shopping basket that looks real so you can physically look into it and see the items that you put in it virtually. Mm-hmm. Then you virtually check out, and those items are delivered to your home. I've, yeah. seen, I've seen a lot of material that, that um, is in test form right now. The normal people out in the world haven't seen. <laughs> I still do a lot of consulting on such things. And uh, there has been a new game released, if you're not aware of it, called Garfield Go. <laughs> Are you familiar with that? Yes, I heard about that. Just it's exact. It's pretty much Pokemon Go, but with Garfield. Yeah, but it's it's more geared towards marketing. It's more geared towards sales. 
And if you actually download it in your phone and look at it, instead of Pokemon Go, where you're just collecting different Pokemon and hoping to battle them someday, Garfield Go is you, you uncover gift cards to, to um, Starbucks, huh. gift cards to Amazon.com. That's pretty interesting. I barely played it. I just downloaded it when it became available a few days ago, and I've barely played it, and I've gotten $15 in legitimate gift cards. That's, hmm, yeah, that's pretty, that's a good idea. Yeah, and um, if you if you get Garfield Go, you go to any major retail any major retail store in the country, at least in my area of Connecticut, and every single main entrance to almost every single store is a Pokestop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a Garfield stop. It's like a coin. <laughs> but if you if you click on the coin, it shows you. Oh, walk into this store right now, and you can get ten percent off all certain things, but only with this Garfield coupon. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty big deal if you're going to a store anyway and you're going to buy milk anyway and now you get a coupon for 15% off milk because you just happened to, to turn on the Garfield app. Yeah. That's going to be what's going to happen with Pokemon Go and other similar apps is that you're going to be led around the stores at first you know, with this type of augmented reality. But it's going to turn into virtual reality where people don't want to go to stores. People don't want to go to Walmart. I have bad experiences at Walmart. Every time I go to Walmart, they always have, it, it, I don't know, it drags the people out of the woods. You know that, I don't know who these people the are. people of Walmart.com? Yes, go to, go, to, go to people of Walmart and you'll understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying anything bad about these people. I, however they live their lives is fine with me. Mm-hmm. It's just I wish that their particular lives wouldn't interact with mine too much. <laughs> and at Walmart, they interact way too much. I mean, it's basically like a, I think it's people just barely woke up in the morning. It's like, well, time to go to Walmart. Time to go to Walmart. And I would say that, you know, you go to a store, say, for example, Walmart, and you go to the toy department. Yeah. Often it's trashed. Yeah. Because a lot of a lot of the lower class parents don't watch their kids, and the kids tear apart the toys and trash the aisles. Have you been to a Kmart? Yes, what's left of them, yes. Yes, it feels like that store is closing down, but it never closes. It's like walking back in time. I, I would say it's it's almost like post-apocalyptic retailing. <laughs> where an much. apocalypse happened, the stores suffered all the damage, yet now they're bringing in new goods after the apocalypse. Yeah. The stores are in such bad shape. There are no rules. Um, Kmart is your saving store. On Kmart's Matchmates, a huge fashion selection, now one-third off. New for fall mix-and-match styles are marked down one-third during this great in-season sale. Choose from a beautiful collection of colorful coordinates and save one-third during the Matchmate in-season sale through Saturday at Kmart. Kmart is the saving Yeah, so you, you know all these things, apparently, all these technology things that we don't know, and it's like... What is it that you do outside of YouTube and painting? I have been a p- most of my income for for 20 years since I've been doing the children's books has come from using my my research library of catalogs mm-hmm. to protect people in copyright and patent and trademark lawsuits. Mm-hmm. I'm a legal researcher and I and I'm a witness in testimony for people that are being sued for infringement. I just I just cost the Nike Corporation at least half a billion dollars <laughs> in a recent case 
where they tried to sue everyone that was making canvas sneakers that looked like Converse All-Stars. Uh-huh. They, they registered the, appear- the appearance of what common Converse All-Star sneakers look like. Mm-hmm. And then they started, then they sued everyone saying, well, we have the trademark on this design. Converse invented it. The Nike Corporation bought out Converse. And um, if you were my age, you would know that every sneaker before 1977 looked like Converse All-Stars. They all looked the same. Mm-hmm. There was no difference. Yeah. You could actually see a website I put up when I first heard about the suit. I put up a blogger blog. If you search Mike Mozart and Converse sneakers, it should show up. I'll link that below. Yeah, so so what happened is is that I I did research in my catalog collection and made scans of many, many hundreds of pages, thousands of pages, however many it turned out to be. And I appeared in Washington to actually give a, a deposition in the case, and my evidence was crucial to have the judge rule against Nike. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it cost and they were and if they had won, which they would have won without my evidence, they would have won because who saves this stuff? Nobody saves old catalogs. Mm-hmm. And I have the I have the only collection in the country, which I'm selling, by the way, which yeah. I'm going to start. I'm going to offer for sale in just a week or so. Mm-hmm. Um, I saved these. I saved uh, Skechers and quite a few other corporations. Walmart was being sued. I saved them a half a billion dollars. From the research I did. This is crazy because, like, most people just know you as that toy guy, but you just do all these things on the side, all these paintings, and you're sort of like a a lawyer, I guess, right? Or what would you say? I'm more of a, I'm more of a, wow. I'm more of a historian, I should say. Yeah, I guess so. Binda what? Binda who? Binda Rubes, the amazing flexible building sticks. Shape them, wrap them, stick them. But you can't break them. Magical wax over super strong string make Benderoos do most anything. Draw with Benderoos. And that's how I, I was a toy designer. What I would do is bring back old toys that the yeah. patents had lapsed on. And I used this catalog collection to find great old toys to bring back, mm. to bring back to life. That the patents had run out on and all the, the rights had run out on. Um, one of mine was shown on my Instagram lately called Benderoos. Oh, yeah, yeah. And was, they, I remember that from a few years ago. Yeah, you were talking about this on the live stream, Benderoos. Yeah, that was a patented product. The patent had expired. And um, I liked the item. I found original samples of the product and presented it to an infomercial company and said, you can bring this out and not get sued. Mm-hmm. One of the problems in the United States right now, and you hear about it all the time, are patent trolls that sue people. Yeah. They, and... I, one of the one of the problems is is that you could bring out almost any product in the United States right now, and get sued. Mm-hmm. If you if you came up with what you thought was a brand new cool original toy and you bring it out to Walmart and you file patents on it, if it sells twenty million dollars worth of product, you are going to get sued by five different entities claiming they it somehow infringes some of their intellectual property. Mm-hmm. None of my products I have ever invented or created have ever resulted in a lawsuit. Hmm, because good. I find old products that are at least 20 years old. So any of the any of the patents, any of the utility patents, you know, the functionality patents will have yeah. expired. Have you um you know about um, Gene Simmons, the guy from Kiss, right? Of course, I know who he is. I know he became a DJ. Do you know about all his uh, trademarks and patent things that he's done? No. We have a friend who works on the on a Cartoon Network show, and they were t- talking about how they had a scene with a bank robbery in a cartoon. And they realize that they cannot have a scene where 
they, they can't show the robbers holding a bag of money with a dollar sign on it because apparently Gene Simmons trademarked that and various other things. See, money bags with dollar signs have been one of the most ubiquitous, common, you know, icons of of any type of painting or drawing or cartoon of money going back a hundred years. There's too many of them. That certainly, I can't imagine what what he's claiming there. I'm just saying that just because somebody files a patent or a, a trademark on something, it doesn't mean that that it's a legitimate filing or a legitimate claim. I don't know what his claim is, but it sounds, you know, it sounds a little out there. That would, I'm certain Disney would be upset seeing that Uncle Scrooge dives around in a money bin and has since like 1948 or even earlier than 1948 in the comic books where there's bags of money with dollar signs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's been out there since before Gene Simmons was born to have that feature. So I don't know what to say about that. That's something I'm sort of taken aback by. Yeah. But I would say that, again, I'm not the expert in interpreting things. What I am is I'm the collector. I'm the authenticator. What I did is I collected what I believed in the future would be evidence, and I documented it to show that it's authentic. Mm-hmm. So that the real pros at the law firms will know exactly what to do with it. Because <laughs> I did not know about this part. Like, I knew about the toy thing and all the Pixar stuff, but I didn't know you were also, you were with all this legal information and documentations and stuff. Yeah, that's a that's a large mm-hmm. part of what I do right now. Yeah. But uh, again, it is, it's a collection I am selling. I'll be selling it hopefully in the next mm-hmm. couple of weeks. Do you also keep all the toys that you've reviewed over the years or do you just give those away i have every toy i've ever reviewed except for just a handful there's only a couple i'm missing Mm -hmm. and the only reason i'm missing them is because of the conan o'brien show oh Mm -hmm. i was booked to appear on conan to review the worst toys in history and the worst toys of the holiday season (laughs) which was probably four years ago five years ago oh man i i I, I'm a since I'm a huge fan of Conan, but I never seen that. I need to find that if it's if it's on YouTube. Well, no, listen, no, I never appeared. Listen to what happened. Oh, what? Conan, do you remember when the Tonight Show was was? Oh yeah, the NBC. NBC yeah. and Conan did not get the slot to be host of the Tonight Show. Mm-hmm. And he went he went off the wall for five days. His last five days on that network before he switched. Yeah. And um, I was scheduled to appear. The day that Pee Wee Herman appeared. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. Now, Jay Leno had not left his show yet. They just announced that Conan wasn't getting it. And Conan, of course, was putting on this this big special extravaganza week to say, screw NBC. I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, my God, what do I do here? So Pee Wee Herman was appearing where I should have appeared. Because it was his last week, he wanted his, his favorite guests on, and Pee Wee Herman got it instead of me. Oh. I was all booked, had my ticket, and I sent my toys out. So I said, okay, um, can you get me? They said, we'll get you on Leno. We'll switch you to Leno. How about that? That's fine. Switch me over to Leno. Right? He said, well, we have to redo the tickets. This is crazy, because they didn't know this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. This, was a, this was a disaster. I still have all my emails and everything about this happening, too. But I had already sent out hundreds of toys. And I only sent a few of the real classic ones, like a really nice Rad Repeat and Tarzan, Dora the Explorer Aqua Pet, that you know looks like a big dildo. I sent out <laughs> a bunch of toys like that ahead, plus some of the new failed toys I thought were failed for the season. So I sent them ahead, and when 
when um, Pee Wee Herman was on, that may be on YouTube. I'd say it's likely that that appearance is on YouTube. Pee Wee Herman actually sits on a Roomba and rides around on a Roomba on that thing. <laughs> so what happened is they actually showed him some of the toys. My toys were actually appeared with oh, Pee Wee Herman. Man. And I didn't wow. get any credit on either show. Now listen, either show. When I say either show, so some of my toys oh. were shown. And a couple of them he just like looked at and threw behind the sofa. And I never, so they said they sent the toys over to Leno, but apparently they all didn't make it over there because Conan kept some of them. Oh. So, so they said that there was no way to book me on Leno because there wasn't enough time. We're really sorry. We'll get your toys sent back to you. So then Leno did toys. He did my toys. All the toys that I was going to review, Leno did himself without me. Oh, man, that's horrible. They Damn. were my toys, the toys I bought and sent out. Now, what happened is that that should be on YouTube, too. Try to find a date that's right about the time of Pee Wee Herman's appearance on mm -hmm. the last of um, uh, Conan O'Brien shows. So um, he showed the toys and he and Leno did a terrible job. He really didn't know what the stuff was. And he just sort of showed it and said, this is funny. Wow. Look at this one. Look at this one. Yeah. And um, I was livid that that not only did I not go, but they showed all the toys anyway. So I called oh. the production staff and says, I want my toys back. Where are, the, <laughs> where are the toys? And they said, we're sorry. We gave them away. When we finished filming that night, everyone took them home. We don't know where they are now. They gave away this that dildo-shaped uh, Dora toy. Yeah, yeah, but a lot of other toys, too, that I'd spent thousands of dollars of my own money on to that's, buy. Well, that's even worse. God. Yeah. So I was really upset. Now, NBC, oh, is, NBC has shown my work a lot. And I used to appear on NBC on the Bonnie Hunt show. Hmm. Bonnie Hunt is a frequent is a frequent uh, voice actor in Pixar movies. She is um, Sally in the Cars movies. Mm -hmm. I just saw the new Cars movie, Cars 3. It was excellent. I really liked mm -hmm. it. I heard it was better than the other ones, yeah. It was better than two. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was probably an overall better movie as entertainment than number one. Number one was very slow pace, mm -hmm. which I really liked. You know, that slow Doc Hollywood pacing. Yeah. But... The three had a lot more excitement. It was really nice. I really liked three quite a lot. But so um, it was the Pixar connection. People, the early early people at Pixar that knew me, recommended to um, Bonnie Hunt. Why don't you have him on your show? You know, he does all these toy reviews on YouTube. He's really funny. So um, I appeared on Bonnie Hunt's show quite a few times, reviewing toys. And that that show used to come on NBC before Ellen for years. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a short-lived show. It was on for seven or eight seasons at least a very nice show so i actually appeared on the bonnie hunt show with with uh <laughs> sally the car from cars <laughs> yeah and, and those videos are on youtube if you search that on youtube just search bonnie hunt and mike mozart and you'll see that i appeared on her show last season our next guest showed us some great gifts for the holidays we had so much fun with him we're having him back he's here to show us the season's hottest must-have gifts please welcome back to the show toy expert mike mozart welcome mike Great to be back. I'm no no Charlie this year. Well, I was afraid after what he did to Biscuit. <laughs> and one of the shows I appeared on, um, guests on that show were were um, um, James Cameron because Avatar oh. just released, and Michelle Rodriguez, and Miss Piggy was on that show. So I got to meet all those people and hang with all those people. What a random set of people to show up on the same day. Yeah, she tended to have a lot of. I think this is what made her show a little bit more interesting. Is that. 
she took a lot of people that you would never put together normally mm-hmm. and she'd mix them together and it made for a very entertaining show. It's like someone like James Cameron will say, well, I never appeared with Miss Piggy before. And she'll, she'll say, I hear you're a producer. Could you get me in a movie? You know, it's Miss Piggy. <laughs> so it's entertaining to have characters mixed up like that. She was a great mm-hmm. show. It was a really nice show. Yeah, you need to make more videos on your own YouTube channel. Like, you know, tell people about your stories. Because people are, really want to know, like, where have you been? And, and I'm sure a lot of these people still don't know all these things that you just told us. Like, you got a lot to say. Yeah, they don't know. They really don't know. Yeah, but let me just say what happened in the street art is that I always believed that street art, graffiti art, would become a a big movement in the United Mm -hmm. States. And it is right now. The movement, the the art movement is called urban art. Mm -hmm. That's what the movement is actually called. That encompasses street art, graffiti art, that type of environmental art. Mm -hmm. And um, what I do is right now, the work I'm doing is more pop art. It is, it is grouped, of course, in urban art because of the, the characters and the background of how I got here. And how I got here is every decade or so, I have tried to become an artist in galleries in New York City doing fine art. Because if you're in a gallery in New York City and your work is selling, it's really considered fine art if you're at that stage. And it was always my dream, but a gallery owner is a very hesitant to take a commercial artist who now is doing gritty street art looking stuff and say and, and that's a completely different style and and they'll say well we can't do it you're a commercial artist you do mickey mouse and winnie the pooh we can't put these mm. these street art things you do in here because people call them phony and that you just created this look to jump on the bandwagon mm-hmm. but i'd been doing this since since the early 70s when i was a little kid it's just that I couldn't interest anyone at the time because no one believed in it. In the 70s, yeah. no art gallery would carry it. It wasn't until Keith Haring really opened the door. Keith Haring and Basquiat really opened the door. So I tried about a decade later again. And again, I got the same reaction from New York City galleries. Back then, there were a lot of galleries in New York City. There had mm-hmm. to be a thousand art galleries in Manhattan. They were everywhere. I couldn't yeah. get one of them to bite on me. I tried so mm-hmm. hard. But... um. Andy Warhol had the same problem. He was a commercial artist, and he had a hard time getting into a gallery because of his commercial background. So I, in the 90s, 91, 92, I got so frustrated because I wanted to be in an art gallery in New York City. I wanted to do this type of art. I started meeting a lot of other artists that were doing it at the time and trying to do it. And the artists, well, they, they were all starting out. They were all broke. And here I am, a professional artist that knows what works. I know what designs work. I know what colors work. I know what, I know what grabs people's attention. Plus, I come from a whole background of advertising you know, and, and product design and how to make packaging that makes people want to buy something. Mm-hmm. So I started helping a lot of other artists without getting any money, not collaborations, just behind the scenes, mentoring people. This is what I think you should do. You know, you've already got your foot in the door somewhere. You should focus on this aspect of your work. You should use these brighter colors. You should do these faces like this. And I started helping a lot of artists. As the 90s went along into the early 2000s, I probably was mentoring 15 to 17 major artists in New York City. 
Mm-hmm. And a couple of them are huge now, very, very big artists. One of them must do $100 million a year. Mm-hmm. And I, um, that's, and so in the early 2000s, I met another artist that was named Alec Monopoly. It wasn't known as Alec Monopoly really at the time. It was more or less known as uh, Alec. Yeah. And uh, that's why I'm doing the artwork now, basically, is that was another person among many that I mentored and helped and got his career really mm-hmm. moving along. I gave him very iconic designs I developed. I gave him a lot of the, the right colors. I showed him the, the different things he should be doing to get seen. And yeah. um, unfortunately, it turned out bad at the end. That was the only yeah. thing that ever turned out bad in my life, helping somebody. Mm-hmm. And I went public to say, guess what, guys? I was That was the guy doing a lot of this work behind Alec Monopoly's whole machine. You know, where he's up to making tens of millions of dollars a year. Here's an artist making tens of millions of dollars a year. You were like a ghost artist for him, essentially, right? Yeah, I was was a mentor and ghost artist designer. I didn't Mm – usually ghost artists do the paintings themselves. What I did is I would do the drawings in black and white, scan the black and white drawings, color them in to show him where all the colors went. He would project the, the black and white and trace the black and white designs and color them in by my color guides, just show, like paint by numbers, somewhere to put the colors. Mm-hmm. And it went along for quite a while. And I do artwork very fast. On my live shows, I do artwork. I can do drawings and paintings very, very quickly. And it was just one of a number of artists I was helping because I hadn't really done artwork since the late 1990s. And I was so bored not doing art. It was so great to do something artwork related mm-hmm. every day. And, um, and I really liked doing the characters because it was just – he started with me doing Mr. Monopoly. He'd already done a couple Monopoly things, but that really wasn't his focus at the time. But um, I sort of got him into the luxury characters of Mr. Monopoly and Uncle Scrooge, which was a favorite of mine because I had done DuckTales artwork years ago. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of Carl Barks, who was the, the father of Uncle Scrooge McDuck particularly. And um, I like Richie Rich Comics. I have a, almost a full collection of Richie Rich Comics in my studio office here which I'm unfortunately cannibalizing now to use as backgrounds for my paintings. Uh-oh. <laughs> but, oh, what can I say? It's all, it's all yeah. for a good cause. So, you got to use what you have. You... Yeah. Yeah, and um, that's something else I must mention. Here's, here's the whole topic of another show, which I'm going to start showing on my Instagram. Yeah. I have one of the largest collections of Monopoly-related games and memorabilia, probably the mm-hmm. largest one held in private hands at the moment. There was a collection that had more valuable, incredible stuff, the Forbes collection, which was sold recently. But I have, I've collected Monopoly memorabilia since the 70s, and I have the original train, the little toy train that belonged to the creator of Monopoly that he Mm. actually drew to make the little train on the spaces. And I have his original black and white drawing of the train he made for those spaces on the boards. Wow. I have one of his original hand-drawn boards he drew himself on cloth. (laughs) It's like on oil cloth. Mm-hmm. I have his letters back and forth to Parker Brothers and a number of other companies he was trying to sell it to at the time. And I know the real background history of the Monopoly game, how he made it and sold it. And a lot of that information came out in a book that wasn't mm-hmm. my book, but another person made a book of it that discovered a lot of what I had already known from my collecting all the memorabilia over the years with my original letters, with my original documentation. Yeah. To show that the original creator, Charles Darrow of Monopoly, basically just outright stole the idea. What? Just stole it. Oh. 
did some artwork and called it his own and started to try to sell it, peddle it to toy companies. Now at McDonald's, Monopoly is more than a game. You can play it for real. You can win real money up to $100,000. Here's a better idea. You could win these exciting real video games from Sega. See McDonald's for rules. Pull these tabs and stick to your saver board. So go to, no, go to McDonald's and play Monopoly for real today. You haven't even started. You've scratched the surface. We didn't even go into the Pixar stuff. We didn't. I that know, whole it's story, crazy. Okay. Just like, you got to talk about that on your own channel. Like, so we, people would love to hear about the beginning of Pixar because we only talk about the pre-Toy Story Pixar. You know so much. Yeah, the pre-Toy Story, the pre-anything Pixar. The, the Pixar that I swear when I went out there was sort of, it was sort of a gloom and doom feeling place when mm -hmm. I first was going out there. Yeah. It's that they... They probably were worried that they'd even be in business next year. Mm -hmm. They weren't making enough money. The computers, when they started doing those computers, weren't making the money they wanted. They had the technology. And um, Steve Jobs is the one that kept them alive. Is Steve Jobs buying them out from Lucas. I guess Lucas was losing money big time and was forced to sell a lot of stuff just to stay alive at one time, if you can believe it. Yeah. And and then um, then Steve Jobs just dumped and dumped and dumped money into this Pixar to keep it alive. When uh, when probably no other company would, mm -hmm. you know, it's somebody that really had a vision of the future to do that. And he had that vision and he did it. And even the people working there, you know, it, it became very stressful, apparently for them at times when it doesn't look like the money would be there. Mm -hmm. And um, well, as it turned out, the money was just enough to keep them going until they became known as Pixar. Yeah. I just wish that Joe Rampt didn't meet meet his untimely mm -hmm. death when mm -hmm. he did because he was such an instrumental part of all the early wonderful Pixar works. And mm -hmm. I think he would have really changed the works after 2006 that Pixar did. I think his input would have really improved the stories a lot. It's not that the stories were bad, but I don't think they were the same feel and type of stories that Pixar had earlier. Like the original Monsters, Inc. was wonderful. Mm -hmm. I didn't like the follow-up Monsters, Inc. that much. No, it was... Monsters okay. University. Yeah. It was standard. And that's... Yeah, I just got to say something. Monsters University? Yeah. That movie, that movie just irritates me so much. <laughs> it, that's so many inconsistencies from the first Monsters, Inc. Mm -hmm. Because from the first Monsters, Inc., it was mentioned a few times in the trailers and in the extras in the movie itself, is that... Is that Sully and Mike Wazowski knew each other since they were children in grade yeah. school. I'm telling you, Big Daddy, you're going to be seeing this face on TV a lot more often. Yeah, like on Monstropolis is most wanted. <laughs> <laughs> You've been jealous of my good looks since the fourth grade, pal. You've been jealous of my good looks since the fourth grade, pal. How could they not? How could they change that important, that, Im that important part of the whole Backstory. I know it would have really changed the dynamic of the two if they knew each other in like since pre preschool. Like wh how I would have fixed it, maybe like just have a, have a line of them saying like, "Oh yeah, I remember you in a preschool in first grade or something." Just have something like that. Yeah, but that that was not in that movie at all. Uh -uh. And the thing I have to say about Pixar mm -hmm. or Disney is that I was doing I was doing Disney artwork before The Little Mermaid came out. Yeah. I was doing Black Cauldron artwork and artwork based on, like, oh, God, Oliver and Company and movies mm -hmm. like that. And you'd walk out of those movies, and you wouldn't remember anything. You'd, you'd watch the movies in the theaters, and people would walk out, and a week later, 
you didn't really remember. I mean, of course, there are people out there say, oh, my God, Black Cauldron's my favorite movie ever. I remember every scene. Well, you watched it 600 times on VHS. That's why you know it. Mm. But when somebody watched it in the theaters and walked out, could you recall lines? You know, could you remember exact moments? Could you sing the songs? And when they walked out of Disney's Little Mermaid, when that came out in theaters, Mm -hmm. that was the turning point that saved Disney. I was doing a lot of Disney work before that. They were they, they were in the gutter. The, no one thought Disney was going to survive. The Disney Renaissance. Yeah, yeah. People walked out of the Little Mermaid singing the songs, talking about specific scenes, remembering words. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the way a movie should be. Yeah. And so that happened. That just happened when I went to see Cars Three. I walked out of the, the theater, and I remembered specific parts I liked. I remembered lines of the movie. I remembered things I really liked about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I remembered the, the school bus, the lady school bus that was called the Fritter. That was entertaining. <laughs> I remembered that. I liked that. And that Disney sort of lost that. A lot of their movies, like Moana, was such a beautiful movie. Oh, how beautiful yeah. this movie is. Mm-hmm. Can, what's, your favorite, what's your favorite line out of the movie? Can you, can you sing one line of any song from that movie? It's um, shiny. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to kick that. your hiney. I love Jimmy Clement. Yeah, I'm just saying is, is that it's, it's lost that. Moana is kind of like a standard uh, Disney movie. It's not what? like, you know, it's by the, by the numbers. Uh, when, you, when you create a movie or you create anything that's entertaining, anything that you want to appeal to people, yeah. you have to create – You have to think that you're creating individual pieces of iconography. Mm -hmm. There has to be something that's an icon. And when I say that, this is something that artists years ago used to drill into me. You know, the old guys that were 80 years old. You know, everything has to be remembered. You want them to look at your artwork and they turn away and they've remembered it. And Andy Warhol was the same way. His Marilyn Monroe series. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows it. It's an icon. It's just the yeah. way it looked and the way it appealed and everything. You know, it's Elvis that's, that has the two guns out, where Elvis is um, cowboy. Mm-hmm. Certain images of Andy Warhol's are very, very, very iconic. And Disney used to have a lot of iconic scenes, iconic songs, things that were burned into your memory because they were, had so much appeal. Yeah. And they seem to have lost that a lot. One thing's missing that, is uh, there's no remember, memorable villains for a while. There haven't been a good memorable villain from them. Well, Tomatoa hasn't always been this glam. I was a drab little crab once. Now I know I can be happy as a clam. Because I'm beautiful, that can make it look shiny. I will sparkle like a wealthy woman's neck. Just a sec, don't you know? Oh, my favorite... When when Aladdin was in production, mm-hmm. I was doing a lot of a lot of products for Aladdin, you know, consumer uh, products out there. Yeah, and I was being sent to Disney Studios when the movie was in production, mm-hmm. because back then, if you're working on toys that have to release when the movie comes out, and you're the person designing them or working on the books or the Easter egg color kits or whatever, you got to go out there and see what they've done with the movie to that point in production, because products have to be developed and designed at least six months ahead of the movie release. Yeah. So they can be on store shelves when the movie's out there. That movie had so many issues, so many problems, so many things that I really fought and complained about mm-hmm. that I didn't like. You know, you know they changed brings, Aladdin. Hmm? That brings up a really good point. Going back to Moana, uh, apparently the chicken character 
in production was supposed to be like a guard dog and angry and aggressive. And so in yeah. all the merchandise, in all the posters, you have this like angry looking chicken. And then when you actually watch the movie, it's this like goofball, like dead, uh, like just brain dead chicken thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's completely contrasting. So that makes a lot of sense with, you know, all the production st- or, you know, promo stuff is done six months in advance. Mm-hmm. Back then, yeah. the, the story was completely different. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, so the, Aladdin was like that. Aladdin changed so much in production. It was crazy up until the last minute. Mm-hmm. I mean, six weeks before this movie's released. I don't. I don't think they actually finished the animation on that until about six weeks before it came out in theaters hmm. because they changed so many bits and pieces and parts. That movie's so full of mistakes, too. That is <laughs> probably the most mistakeful movie in history. <laughs> Beyond any other, it's just loaded. I'm sorry, I don't even remember how I segued into this. The- well, just like P- Disney Pixar and stuff. Yeah, well, I was also talking about iconic images, iconic movies. Yeah. When When you create something, it has to have those iconic images. That's what people remember those those moments i would say a great one is the the spaghetti and meatball scene with lady in the tramp mm-hmm. where they're singing this is the night yeah where they are sucking that piece of spaghetti until they come and kiss and she turns away shy mm-hmm. that is such an iconic moment yeah. in a disney movie everyone knows that that is that is like perfect and they don't seem to focus on creating moments like that there's nothing and they don't they're Moana didn't have a lot of those moments that should have been full of them. The Little Mermaid was all those moments. Everything about Little Mermaid was moments like that, where people remembered that moment. Very iconic shots and poses and stuff. Yeah. And that's what Disney's lost a lot of lately that I've seen. And when I did my street art, when I was helping a lot of artists, I tried to say, you know, you draw very well, your your paintings are beautiful, but they're not iconic. You have Mm -hmm. to come up with images that are very strong and very striking. That people, when, at a glance, they'll look at a glance and they'll remember that because yeah. that's what they like. That's what appealed to them. That's what that's what opened their hearts that they remember. Right, And uh, that's something else about the Pixar story that was told to me by Joe Ramped, his, his mm-hmm. idea of what happened before Toy Story 1. Yeah. Because it seemed to be – when he told me the story or the bits and pieces, it was all iconic moments, like those moments. Yeah, because uh, when something was realized, something was known, something was shared, something became, you know, alive. Mm-hmm. To, There's uh, not a lot of things coming alive anymore. Uh, to to fill um, people in on uh, on the live stream, you discussed uh, Joe Ran, was it right? Uh, Joe Ramped. Joe Ramped. He, yeah, he talked about. Uh, well, you you were ta- talking about how there was a Toy Story prequel that he came up with and he was telling you this story and you told us this and it was just like this great detail about the origin of Woody and where he came from and where yeah. Slinky came it, from. Yeah. yeah, but it wasn't a Toy Story prequel. It wasn't a prequel at all. Yeah. At the end at the end of our conversation, at the end of the conversation I had with him about it, mm-hmm. I said, wow, it sounds like you already have a prequel, Toy, a Toy Story Zero. I even called it that. You have a, the prequel to Toy Story 1. Yeah. And he said, there's never going to be another Toy Story movie. Um, he said it's just so, so matter-of-factly, and he's such a great guy, such a warm, friendly, wonderful human being. Mm-hmm. But he said, there's never going to be another Toy Story movie. He <sighs> said Toy Story 2 was was a major problem, caused a lot of, a lot of divide in Pixar mm. and Disney. Apparently, Toy Story 2 was supposed to be a made-for-DVD movie. Yeah. I guess they had a contract with Disney where Pixar would create... I don't know what the deal was, but he he said it quickly. 
it was something like Pixar would create three theatrical release movies and maybe three directed DVD movies, mm-hmm. something like that. If I remember correctly, it was about uh, I think the original story was of Buzz Lightyear. He got a defect, so they had to go to Japan to fix him. Yeah. Well, what what he well what he had explained to me because I didn't know he didn't say any backstory about Buzz Lightyear. He wasn't mm-hmm. involved in this. It was all about what happened before Toy Story one. Mm-hmm. And um, Buzz wasn't involved in that. His, his his information he gave me was mostly from the 1950s, late mm-hmm. 50s, early 60s. But um, apparently he he believed that Pixar would never produce another Toy Story movie at the time because Disney apparently when Toy Story 2, it became apparent that it was good enough for theatrical release and they decided to bring it to theatrical release and it was released in theaters. That Disney decided they weren't going to count that as a theatrical le- release because it had started as a direct-to-DVD release. So they said, we're not going to count this in our contract as a theatrical mm. release, even though it came out in theaters. Yeah. He was Well, this is what he told me. I might, be, I might be wrong, and it might be 20 years of faulty memory, but I'm pretty sure that's what the basic story was. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I pointed out to Joe Ramped, that there were a lot of inconsistencies. I said there were errors. I actually said the word errors. There's errors in Toy Story 1 and, and 2 that just don't make any sense. I can't believe that there were mistakes like that. Mm-hmm. And he said, there are no mistakes. The movies are perfect. <laughs> perfect. He said, just said the word just calmly and just very pleasantly, perfect. <laughs> and I'll say, well, I would say that one of the largest errors that I see or something that I doesn't make any sense to me is how come Andy's having his birthday party, and there's no dad. What happened to his dad if all the kids are having this wonderful, happy birthday party? He's all excited. There's no tears. There's no sad people, but there's no father there. Mm-hmm. If he had gotten a divorce, you know, it would be people would be very upset at the party, right? Because you know he wants dad there, and he probably can't because of divorce. If his father died, it must be just recently because he has a little sister and a playpen that's about you know 14 or 16 months old. So if he died, it must have been within the last year. And I'm sure everyone would be upset. It'd be a real sad occasion to have your first birthday without dad. Mm. And I said, it just can't be, just, just can't be right. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, it's, it's, it's a long story, but it, it, uh, Andy's dad had died. He said, his father died. Mm-hmm. And I said, Andy's father's dad, <laughs> just like that, Ted. And he says, it says, well, at the time, I guess he realized that Disney was going to buy them or own them or something. He says, yeah. the first thing he said, look, look, Disney killed off Cinderella's father in the first five minutes of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Disney loves killing off dads. Oh, God. Like, oh, yeah, they do do that, don't they? Yeah. You know, so. Um, but uh, I just want to say that you don't have to, like, go over the entire story of um, Toy Story Zero. Like, uh, people can watch your uh, live stream. I'll, I can link to it below. Oh, that that's has so many mistakes. Not mistakes. There aren't mistakes. It's just there's so many more details I didn't oh. go into. There's a lot of details. There. I think you should make a video on it on your own to attract people to your YouTube channel. Okay. Also, but this video is like to... we're already like two hours into this, and it's it's like so much information to take in. It's just like this is one of the longest podcasts, and it's great. I have no problems keeping going because yeah. I have like no end of no end of just interesting things that have happened. You to gotta me. save it for your YouTube channel. Like this. people want to know these things.
As, as much as people have talked about pop culture nostalgia, pop culture nostalgia has not worked very well mm-hmm. in in media or movies or TV shows or whatever. They've tried to bring back Strawberry Shortcake. hasn't yeah. worked. They're bringing back Animaniacs. I mean, you're aware of that. Yeah. But Animaniacs was great for the time. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to work well now for this time. I don't think it's going to have the same appeal with, with the type of characters. Mm-hmm. I would say that... To gauge if something's going to be popular to be brought back, is it popular now, mm-hmm. even though it's not promoted? If all the kids in the world were sharing memes and, and um, GIFs of Animaniacs things all over the internet right now, yes, probably maybe we it would do, be a good though. time to bring it back because it shows a lot of interest. We do. Yeah. I mean, like, well, I see plenty. Yeah. Like, uh, I, no, I like, obviously, a lot of the jokes don't work anymore because it's so much pop culture, but... I think there's something somewhat exciting about seeing what Animaniacs would look like now. Yeah, I guess if they. I mean, uh, spe- go ahead, Pam. I guess if they talk about stuff today, then it'll make sense. Like, it, you know, because it, it. I mean, with with the with the Trump climate, with political humor, and people being so attached to political humor now, especially. I mean, look at YouTube. Its main page is literally, you know, it's half the time it's um, uh, just politician talk. I can see Animaniacs taking that. Now, I don't know if it's aiming towards kids or if it's aiming towards a more teen audience, but um, I, I'd i be fascinated if they went that route. Um, I, I just want to say that uh, we usually end off these uh, podcasts by talking about questions, and we do have a question that sort of pertains to that. Uh, uh, questions. If anybody has a question, be sure to leave your question in the YouTube comments of this video. And our first question is a uh, greasy question. Hey, you filthy podcasters do you feel that after samurai jack's success that there are any other cartoons that can be rebooted under a more adult format and would work as well as jack did i think it just really depends on um whether or not they're uh trying to go for the same demographic versus like aging it up yeah like if they're trying to capture both a previous generation and the current one i think there's going to be a lot of missed signals because it's going to be very scattered and what they're trying to do but like aging stuff up, people love edgy stuff, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that's, you know, Samurai Jacks, all of a sudden there's blood, all this stuff. People got really excited about that. So I think depending on the product, probably. Well, if you change, this is this is an important thing that you have to consider when you think about bringing back anything mm-hmm. from the past is the format people are going to be watching it in. Yeah. How are they going to be seeing this? Because a lot of people aren't sitting watching their televisions anymore. Mm-hmm. They are watching Netflix or they're watching it on YouTube or they're watching it on other sites. Mm-hmm. And it has to be a place where people are actually going to be returning to or at least those episodes will have to gather somewhere so people can bulk watch them. Yeah. Binge watch them like they do on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And um, that's that's an issue. And a lot of these new TV shows really aren't making money, Mm-mm. which is another problem. I'm sure Samurai Jack, which I've seen, I've seen the new shows, are, which are great, and I've seen people sharing bits and pieces and gifts of them. But is it making any money? That's one of the problems is a lot of people are making a lot of media right now, and they're not making money. Yeah. And big companies are very are very conscientious of that because they have to show a return on investment to their shareholders. Mm-hmm. And there are things that would be successful. I, I would say uh, an interesting example of something that 
is the TV show Family Guy. Those TV show Family Guy has been on for two decades. And, of course, it was originally canceled. It was canceled in its first season and brought back on another network. And that appeals to an audience that's still watching television. That is really appearing to pe- appealing to people that are about 40 to 55 years old. And they constantly make jokes on that show that really appeal to that target market. Um, I was watching an old clip of it here, an old episode here at my studio while I was working. And there's a part where their car breaks down in Pennsylvania Dutch Amish country. And now they're stuck there for a few days. Mm-hmm. And um, Peter Griffin makes a joke. He looks at a barn and he says, oh, that, that's a great barn. And he looks at the screen and goes, bye Mennonites. <laughs> Do you know what that joke means? Nope. Nobody does. They'd have to be my age or older to get the joke. <laughs> is that if you look up a TV commercial on YouTube, that's um, there was a men's cologne called Menin. It was Menin Cologne. Mm-hmm. And their, their cologne ads ended by Menin. <laughs> so they made antiperspirant by Menin. Mm-hmm. And those were probably out in the mid-70s. Yeah. 1970s. But but Family Guy, most of the jokes that I see are really appealing to people that are my age. They're probably about 45, 55 years old in that, in that age range. And it's working. That's an age range that's working, and they're getting advertisers for it. But you get something to appeal to a younger audience, it's where is it going to appear? How are you going to draw people to watch it on YouTube? There was... YouTube had this grand idea that they would take $100 million invested in series for YouTube. And content creators could submit their ideas for a series, and they would actually allot them money to try to develop their series. And all the advertising revenue, until it was paid back, would go back to YouTube. Are you, do you remember this program? Vaguely, I think it was. I do. It's the YouTube Collective. It's like oh. why Kevin Smith had a YouTube channel, Fred Raider, um, yeah. the Geek and Sundry uh, all those bigger channels that had like one random celebrity attached to it, and almost all of them yeah. failed. They none of them got near the projected uh, score. Like Channel Federator's Cartoon Hangover is technically a huge failure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all those shows were huge failures. The problem that everyone, no matter what you talk about now for bringing your show back, I can tell you right now that ninety percent of everything will fail. Ninety nine percent will fail. And the reason everything fails is the writing, the writer behind it is when, I mean, look how old I am. I'm, I'm so old. I mean, I knew Moses when he was in high school. I'm so old. But oh, yeah? something that's been consistent is you're all aware of one, one hit wonder songs. Yes. They're great. They're wonderful songs. There's these people came out with this one amazing song. Everyone loves their sound. They love the voices. But one song. Because mm-hmm. that one song was well written. Yeah. It was the writing of the song. Here are the people set up in a studio. If they had a writer behind them with 12 great songs, they would have 12 more hits, but they don't have the writers. That's the problem with television. There are too few, or I say video entertainment now. There are too few good writers, and they're all in hot demand. And they're all, they're all tied up with major production-type shows. And... For if somebody actually came down the pike that was a great writer out of the blue, whatever they did, whatever they turned their attention to would be amazing. Mm-hmm. It would be spectacular. It's just that there are so few writers. There's so many talented singers. There's so many talented actors. There's so many talented 
video video makers, mm-hmm. but there are so few writers. That's yeah. one thing they never concentrate on or never talk about on YouTube or anywhere else. Yeah, is that if the writing sucks, the things that suck, no matter what. Yeah, yeah I, I feel as though there are many, many channels out there all over the place that never, ever talk about writing at all. Mm-hmm. And it's such yeah. shame. Because it's in the background. It's, like People care about the uh, the visual, the, the, what's in the front line. I, I, could, I, I think I could only name like um, channels that talk about the writing like in one hand, like uh, Saber Spark, uh, Your Channel Pan, mm-hmm. uh, the Jim's Review Channel, uh God, I'm I'm starting to run out of people. Um, I hate everything. Uh, yeah. Uh, your movie sucks. Jeez, man, I'm, I'm I just can't I can't think of them all. Mm-hmm. You know, just, you know. I've uh, I have always been fascinated by writing and writers. Mm-hmm. That's where that's where the that's where the the passion is, the love is, the hate. Every emotion is there that, in their hands. Yeah. You're right, Mike. That is su- that is such a very niche thing to be into, yeah. you know. Yeah, and and if you wanted to bring back another show like Animaniacs, I wanted there was a comic strip I wanted to bring back so bad that had been dormant for 20 years at that time, called Pogo. You ever That's, hear of Pogo? Wait, that sounds very familiar. Hang on, Pogo. Pogo. Po- there was a comic strip called Pogo about a possum, and it was a political cartoon. Mm. The whole thing was very political. Mm-hmm. And it was I, by Walt Kelly. It was the, one of the greatest comic strips of all time. And when the artist died, they they didn't continue the strip because mm-hmm. they couldn't find anyone to write it. It's all in the writing. Mm-hmm. So I actually went through the effort to try to become the new artist of Pogo mm-hmm. and bring it back. And I and I made two weeks worth of dailies. I did some Sunday pages. I did the writing, and I just couldn't do it. They brought the comic strip back without me, but I said I can't do it because everyone in the family that had any control over the rights to this character all had their own ideas. So I'd draw this, I'd do this great writing. People say, "Well, I don't like that. You have to take that part out. That's too controversial." Oh no, you got to get a woman character in here because women are hot now. Oh wait a second, where's 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 your African American character because we need more African Americans in this comic strip? Well, it's not that. It's just that it's not. I'm writing a story right now, and this is what fits the story. We have to keep the story coherent. We'll work in everything else as it goes along, but we have to have the, the story, the theme. Basically, too many cooks in the kitchen. Too many cooks. And a good writer has to be by themselves or two writers together that work really well together. But I see, I see television programming or all those failed YouTube events that too many writers, too many cooks, too many people concerned about what people would think. And then you go see a great movie that comes out that came out in theaters, Wonder Woman, yeah. the, the DC one. The writing on that was excellent. What mm-hmm. excellent writing that was. It was there was there was a lot of sloppy moments in it because of the way it was produced. Yeah. But the writing was excellent. The understory was excellent. People loved the movie because of the understory, the story is great. Cuz I, I... If you look at a Hollywood movie, there's always like a a list of like this movie had like six writers and it's just like each of them has a different vision sort of. Too many cooks, too many cooks, too many cooks, too many cooks, too many cooks. Well, I have to say that when I did my my voiceovers, I was voicing over cartoons. That's a whole nother story. When I go public with that, I'm not going to go public until I have my scripts and my documentation. To show I actually did the voices because mm-hmm. I wasn't credited on the, the TV shows. And some of the TV shows are such classics now. 
Hmm. And if I had actually, at the time, you know, at the time I did this because it was fun, yeah. who would think that old, old, stupid import cartoon shows would ever become anything? You know, I grew up in an era of things like Winky Dink and Clutch Cargo. <laughs> Look that up, guys. On YouTube. I know about Clutch guys. Cargo. God, Clutch Cargo is one of the most terrifying things. Ever. I loved it as a child. It was it's that scary. moist mouth there stuck through a piece of cardboard. Oh. But I used to, I grew up with that. And I never thought any of that material would be classics, which they're not. No. But when I was doing the work I was doing, it was such a kick to do it. To get, wow, my God, I just got paid 600 bucks for an afternoon's worth of work, you know, mm -hmm. talking like a robot. Yeah. And I had the best time doing it. And I, at the time, didn't think much of it. It was something I was, I was near the studios. They, they liked me, and I did a whole bunch of fill-in voices. I was like the king of the extra voices they needed mm -hmm. because people that were union people got paid extra to do extra voices in an episode. Mm -hmm. So it, if you what, were – What show is this? I'm, I don't want to say yet. I will okay. publish the shows, and I will actually publish little five-second clips out of them like in a little small screen next to me mm -hmm. so it get picked up on content ID. Yeah. I want people to see – that voice I did with the contract and my script to show that I did that voice and that voice and that voice and that voice. Yeah. I did so many peripheral voices for characters in these old things. Look, when you look up in the movies, all the voices aren't credited because there's a lot of there's a lot of characters. It's the most boring thing to ever do in history. Okay, what it is is you sit in a room, and it has like the egg crate walls, and you and you have characters that have moving mouths already projecting on the screen in front of you, and you have to match your voice somewhat close to it. Mm -hmm. So if the line doesn't work, they'll actually change the line a little bit. The, the scripts are already there, but you'll see on the scripts where I've crossed out a word because it just doesn't look right mm -hmm. in the spot. Because let's say if, if you said the word Lamborghini, you know it looks like you're saying three words, and their mouth only moves once. So you put in car because uh -huh. a writer didn't take into account you know what the the voice was enough let me let me try let me do a few voices for you just so you can marvel now remember we would sit in a room and we would record like okay do it again but add the word now okay do it again but stick to the script because if you went off script they would yell at you okay so just to, just to clarify you you did yourself did a good performance but it was messed up in editing no, 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 no. We oh. had to we had to do many, many, many takes. It's like what they did with Disney's Aladdin. Yeah. When every time they did anything, it was a hundred takes for one line. And I was doing like maybe ten to fifteen takes for a line. Uh, here, wanna hear some wanna hear some voices? I guess so. Of course. We have traveled across the universe in search of this flea of a person to crush. No longer will you be a threat to the deception. You're a And I'm not saying what I was. <laughs> not yet. I was a fill-in voice where I filled in for characters that would show up that weren't normal characters. Because it happened all the time in those old shows, remember? Yeah, like a one-shot character. Like, say, an army would come down. Lord, we have tracked down this. But I get all kinds of strange voices. Yes, we have saved the ruby from the crashed ship. It will not come into your possession until you pay our ransom. I did all kinds of stuff like that. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. But a lot of it was more robot-y twang. So think about it now, how a lot of those Japanese things had voiceover animations that sort of sounded like that. Voiceovers? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm not credited, but I'm going to credit myself. My contracts say that... Uh, hmm? You got to do it, yeah. <laughs> I have non-disclosure contracts that say I'll never tell anyone. Hey, it's, oh. been, it's been 20 years. Let them sue me. Wow. Damn, that sucks. I God, it's kind of like a... I don't care. 
Yeah, it's like Atari, how they said, like, you couldn't credit yourself and someone uh, programmed an Easter egg where in this game called Adventure where you pick up a key and go to this direction and you find the mm-hmm. the credits as an Easter egg because Atari didn't want people crediting themselves. Yeah, so I... So but back in the day, I did a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. I did a lot. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come forward with it and show some people. Do it. To them, I was just a way to save money and save problems with unions, union people. Mm. Mm-hmm. But it was fun. It was a lot of fun. They yeah. really wanted me to keep doing it. But I just didn't have the time at the time because I was busy with all the other stuff I was doing. Mm-hmm. It's just too difficult to keep working and reaching for more ways to torture them. God, it was fun. I was I really good at it. I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but I'm getting really tired. So it's like we recorded like almost three hours, I believe. Oh, geez, you did. You barely got anything. God, this is all amazing. Do you you want to answer like one final question, and we can wrap this up? At Peggy, why now? Why I don't know. Why are what are your some of your favorite franchises that you have designed merch for? Oh my God, this is gonna sound really crazy. I was a very good artist of. The Disney princess characters mm-hmm. in the, especially the nineties. Yeah. Because okay. most people doing the artwork sucked at the time. <laughs> it was really poor. I would say one of the errors is they would either make them too sexy. They're supposed to be like 15 or 16. Uh-oh. And then, then you can't make them sexy and mature like women, which a lot of people did at the time. And you can't make them look too kiddish or, or ugly. Cause most of it was just on ugly. Mm-hmm. That's why in the, in one of the Pez Spencer videos, I just comment how poor the sculpting is, how poor the, artwork is and um i remember at the time two things i really at the time when i was doing that and i was seeing disney licensing people can't you do a program of just disney princesses i think it'd be really cute no we don't like mixing up the the licensed properties because because we make money because we license cinderella we license Belle from beauty and the beast we license snow white from the seven dwarves why would we group them into one big program and lose all that additional revenue mm-hmm. <laughs> i get it yeah like people love crossovers yeah, I thought it would be really great. And the other thing is I always like Tinkerbell because she's always like a bathing beauty. Mm-hmm. I like drawing uh, – it's fun to draw girls that are pretty. I always sort of enjoy doing that. Mm-hmm. I haven't done much of it lately. If yeah. you look on my Instagram, you'll see I did Betty Boop, mm-hmm. Roger Rabbit, and stuff like that. Yeah. I like doing those properties, but I didn't do a lot of it at the time mostly because they didn't group the properties together like that at the time. And um, I did like – I particularly like doing artwork for the Aladdin movie. Even though the movie had a lot of problems and it wasn't the best Disney movie, mm-hmm. I really liked drawing and painting Genie and Aladdin. I thought that they were great characters together and they worked well together. I'd say DuckTales is probably my number one favorite. Oh, yeah. <laughs> at the we time when DuckTales first came out. Mm-hmm. I just love drawing Uncle Scrooge McDuck because I grew up reading those comic books. Yeah. Uncle Scrooge, you know, from Western Publishing, which was first Dell Comics and it was Gold Key Comics. And I, I devoured those as a child. I was I was heartbroken when they raised the price from twelve cents to fifteen cents. I thought mm. I was getting robbed <laughs> on those comics. I'd say the reason I liked drawing Uncle Scrooge so much at the time is you could draw Uncle Scrooge angry. Mm-hmm. Uncle Scrooge had a range of emotions. Yeah. You know, at the time Disney didn't do a lot of range of emotions. Mickey Mouse at that time period was always drawn happy. Think of any licensed product from Mickey, he's always standing there smiling. Except Woo-hoo! for Kingdom Hearts, if you know that game. <laughs> yeah, but that came much later. That was different. Yeah. They'll pay for this. Talk about how brilliant that was. Summon <laughs> Bambi, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, what's nice about Uncle Scrooge is when you make him happy or you make him angry, his whole body shows that he's angry. Yeah. His whole body shows that he's happy. 
Mm-hmm. You could take his head off and you could look at the body and know exactly what his facial expression will look like. Mm-hmm. It's posing. Whereas yeah. a lot of characters aren't like that. They react to the things. Mm-hmm. Probably the girl Moana shows that a lot in that movie. She yeah. seemed her, she seemed to have a lot of body language that matched her facial expressions. And a lot of mm-hmm. Disney movies lately seem to have toned that way back, which is kind of sad. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of people now in animation or in children's books call it um, ham acting, overacting. Like William Shatner used to overact <laughs> all of his, his his hands, his arms, his face. Yeah. He, you know, he would just go for that emotion. And I'm going to be high. As a kite by then. But we remember him because of that. Yeah. And people liked it. They really did like it. And if you're drawing a cartoon character or a cartoon show, it should have that. Why are you going to not do it if it works? One thing I saw, like, a, there's this, there's a DC cartoon called Teen Titans. And, in the, and, like, there's this one gloomy character called Raven who's always angry and never smiles. But I noticed in a lot of the products and, like, the DVD cases, like, she's always, like, flying in the air and just with a smile. It's like, yeah. And it's like, that is not that character. I hate that. I, I, I know exactly what you're saying. In the movie, uh, which one was it? One of those Marvel movies, they all sort of blend in for me. That Negasonic teenage warhead girl. From Deadpool, yeah. Who's always supposed to be sort of dour and, mm-hmm. you know, and sad and unhappy. Mm-hmm. But I like when Tony Stark sort of makes fun of her. I think it's pretty pretty sure it was Tony Stark. Deadpool. Said, uh, <laughs> yeah. Deadpool, I'm sorry, it was Deadpool. What am I thinking? Jeez. I mean, what's the problem with thinking, the Marvel movie? I mean, really? The Marvel movies, to me, are just one big, wonderful blur. They're standardized. Yeah, they've all just sort of, they all just fit together like big puzzle pieces. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you lose what scene was in what movie yeah. because they all seem to be interchangeable scenes because it's all the same universe with the same characters. Sometimes you sort of mix them up in your mind. Mm-hmm. But I, I like what they did with her in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. Mm-hmm. Got me in a box here, whatever she says to him. Yeah. Yeah, Dead, Deadpool was probably one of the best movies to be released in the past 15 years. Not that it was maybe the best writing or the best movie overall, but it changed a lot of ways people think about how to write a movie. I appreciate how cheap the movie was because they used like the same three sets and they saved a ton of money and it was this big success. I guess this is the end of the podcast. <laughs> but I'm Pan Pizza. Who are you people? I'm Nolan. I'm Izzy. <laughs> Mike. Mike, Hello? say that what? I'm Mike Mozart, you know, what you say? Because we, we, oh. we, we say our names when we go I, well, it's, You're very soft. It's, you sound very soft on the phone. It's almost impossible to hear what you were saying. But yeah, just say, uh, you know, just it, say I'm Mike Mozart and we're just going to, we, we usually say our names when we sign off. Okay, go ahead. Go, do it again. Sorry. It's like, I'm Pan Pizza. Who are you people? I'm no hey, one again. Mike Mozart. Mike Mozart's <laughs> there. There's too much now. There's, goodbye, everyone. Bye. We recorded almost three hours. I am Mike Mozart. You do not question this information. <laughs>